Okay, you can turn now to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the title of the message this morning is Getting the Question Right. Well, on October 1st, 2017, a Good Samaritan law went into effect in China. An article from the China Daily the following week explained it like this. Under the legislation, people who voluntarily offer emergency assistance to those who are or who they believe to be injured, ill, in danger, or otherwise incapacitated will not have civil liability in the event of harm to the victims. The article explains a few incidents that produced social outrage, including the video from 2011 of a two-year-old girl who was run over by two vehicles while 18 people walked right past her and left her laying there on the ground. Finally, a lady who was a garbage collector in this kind of complex, this shopping center area where vehicles could drive through, This garbage lady walks by and scoops her up and begins crying out, whose child is this? And the mother finally comes and finds her daughter. And obviously she went to the hospital and a few days later, the the girl passed away. And after watching this video, which was probably one of the most enraging moments of my life, I asked my best Chinese friend, Michael, how could this happen? I mean, you're just watching people walk by this little girl who's laying there dying after being run over by two vehicles. I'm like, how can this, how can human beings do this? And he explained to me how from a young age that he was taught by his parents to not help people in a situation like that. To just walk past. If someone falls down or someone gets hurt, you're expected to ignore them. To only watch out for yourself. Now, I don't share this story in order to criticize Chinese culture or to directly criticize the Chinese government. In many ways, I think this is the logical outworking of an atheistic worldview and almost three quarters of a century of heavy-handed government oppression. But what we're going to see in our passage this morning, one that is so familiar to all of us, so familiar that everyone knows what you mean when you say, be a good Samaritan. Even in our increasingly secular society. So familiar and universal, this story, that the Chinese government had to choose this story from the Bible, right? Something that they don't want in the hands of their people. They don't want their people living according to biblical standards, but they had to put in place a good Samaritan law to counteract this type of thinking in order to communicate that it's okay to help people who are in need. And what we're going to see this morning is, is that it's not just those who deny God and his commandments that need this parable of the good Samaritan. Lest we think as Americans we're so much better and we have this figured out. Jesus told this parable to a religious expert, someone who knew the Bible inside and out. 
And I believe that this parable was given and recorded for us, the people of God, in order that we might identify ourselves with this religious expert. My goal this morning is to get us to see that how we ourselves might similarly respond and to see what type of response Jesus demands from us. The truth is, we are also inclined to despise the word of the Lord by seeking to redefine God's standards in order to justify ourselves. Let me say that again. We are inclined to despise the word of the Lord by seeking to redefine God's standards in order to justify ourselves. The focus, what we're going to be looking at this week and over the next two weeks with the passage of Mary and Martha next week, and then the following week, the Lord's Prayer and the teaching that follows that section, we're going to be looking at this question. Which kind of disciple are you? There's going to be some very stark contrast these next three weeks. Which kind of disciple are you? So let us seek to answer that question now as we go to God's word. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we need our hearts this morning to be confronted by your word. We need these questions put to us, and we need to be able to answer honestly. 
May we look to Jesus this morning, the author and perfecter of our faith. May we seek after him. May we seek to do what he commands us. We pray in his name. Amen. As I mentioned, I believe that we are meant to identify with this lawyer, this religious expert in the law of God. We are intended to feel the weight of this confrontation between him and Jesus. Unlike a couple of weeks ago where we saw Jesus rebuke James and John for their boneheaded question about calling down fire on a Samaritan village, there is no direct rebuke here. Jesus engages with this lawyer in what appears on the surface to be a pretty friendly encounter. However, Jesus is really probing here, and he's digging deeper, getting at the question, where is your heart really at? Where is your heart really at? You can talk about words and, and quote scripture, and you can do all these things, but Mr. Lawyer, where is your heart really at? Before we get into those details of that confrontation, I want us to be reminded of Jesus' approach. He is a good shepherd, and he is gentle with his sheep. Now, it's true that there are times when we may need a harsh rebuke for our sin, but the work of our good shepherd is more often than not one of gentleness and patience as he exposes our hearts, as he shapes and molds us into the kind of followers that he desires us to be. So how will we respond? What kind of disciples will we be? If you're taking notes, this passage breaks up pretty nicely into three sections. The first is, Jesus' initial encounter with the lawyer in verses 25 to 28. The second is the lawyer's question, and then Jesus' parable in verses 29 to 35. And the third is where Jesus reframes the question, and he challenges the lawyer in verses 36 to 37. So that's the three sections that we're going to look at here. The first is Jesus' initial encounter with the lawyer in verses 25 to 28. This lawyer here is not like we would think of a lawyer today. Uh, this, this is an expert in the law, expert in the law of God. Uh, he has been religiously trained, and he stands up here and puts Jesus to the test. He asks Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. And we need to look at the context and the nature of this test, as well as what's behind this question. What is he really asking here? First, the context of the test is likely a response to what he overheard earlier in Jesus' discussion with the crowds and with his disciples. In verse 21, which we saw last week, Jesus says he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. He said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. The lawyer here is the one who is the wise and understanding one to whom these things have been hidden. How dare Jesus make this type of comment about him? 
How dare he say that all of his study and all of his work is in vain and that these little children can have a deeper insight into the things of God? Verses 23 and 24 then. Jesus addresses here his ragtag group of uneducated disciples, fishermen, tax collectors, who have seen and heard more than prophets and kings. Surely this ruffled the feathers of this expert in the law. And he is coming for Jesus here. And we see that in the nature of the test. The word here that's used for test, it doesn't mean that he just asked Jesus a question. It's almost always used negatively in scripture. It's actually the same word that is quoted in Luke 4 when Satan comes to Jesus and when he tempts him in the wilderness, and he tells Jesus to throw himself down from the temple, and God's angels will catch him. Do you remember how Jesus replied to Satan? It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6.16, which we just read earlier. What the lawyer is doing here is he's putting Jesus to the test. You are not to put the Lord your God to the test. So he is clearly out of line here to test Jesus in this manner. He's trying to trap him. He's trying to show him up. He's trying to disprove what Jesus had said earlier. So what's the question that he tests him with? Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now he's probably not asking here, and this we know this from a lot of different writings about the debates of these questions from kind of ancient Jewish scholars. He's not asking, what can I do to have my sins forgiven and stand before God without guilt and shame? How can my heart of stone be turned into a heart of flesh? That's not what the lawyer is asking here. He's asking, what must I do to be on the right side at the end of history and to share in the resurrection of the righteous? Now, you might hear that and say, well, what's the difference? This is why the context here is so important. Jesus has just explained that it's not about external learning in verse 21. It's not about political or religious status, right? Being a prophet or a king. It's not being on the right side in a sense. But rather knowing the Father because you know the Son because the Son has revealed the Father to you. Jesus' comments earlier were really a rebuke against the whole system, the whole system that they had built up saying, if I do these things, if I obey the law of God and if I really try hard, I'll be on the right side at the end of history, right? At the resurrection of the righteous. I'll be more righteous than I will be unrighteous. So I'll be good, right? That's what the lawyer's question is where that's coming from. And clearly he is not yet in the company, in this company of those who who know the Son, who know the Father through the Son. And Jesus is out here to prove how all of this works. So Jesus here, in classic Jesus fashion, does not answer his question with an answer, but with a question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, you're the expert, Mr. Lawyer. I'm just some traveling teacher who you clearly think does not know as much as you do. Why don't you tell me? Right? He puts the question to him. 
And the lawyer proceeds to answer, quoting the two greatest commandments from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, love for God and love for neighbor. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy, right? Well, Jesus seems to think so because he affirms his answer. And he tells him, do this and you will live. And this should be the end of the conversation, right? They should both walk away and everybody's happy. Do this and you will live. That's the answer to your question. But I think the lawyer's response here exposes both his heart and ours. Next, we're going to see the lawyer's response to Jesus' command as he asks another question, and then we'll see Jesus' parable that is used to reframe the question. So the lawyer's question to Jesus after Jesus told him to do this and he will live. Verse 29, his question is, and who is my neighbor? Now, it's hard not to imagine that this question was being asked with a good degree of snark behind it, which is clear from Luke's comment at the beginning of verse 29, that the lawyer was desiring to justify himself. We don't do this, right? Well, how was he desiring to justify himself, and what does that have to do with us? In other words, how should we relate to his attempt to justify himself. I said earlier that we are inclined to despise the word of the Lord by seeking to redefine God's standards in order to justify ourselves. Let's see how the lawyer did that. First of all, we must acknowledge that he answered Jesus' question about what was written in the law correctly by quoting from Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summary verse of Leviticus 19 verses 9 through 18, which gives a whole list of ways in which the people of Israel should provide for the poor and the sojourners among them. They were to leave extra grain in the fields. They were to leave extra grapes in the vineyard so that people who were traveling through could have food to eat. They were to, to not steal and to not oppress workers. They were not to have lawsuits against fellow Israelites and treat them unjustly in that way. And these are really important things. Good things for us to think about as a church today as we think about justice and mercy. How are we to treat those who are sojourners and strangers, so to speak, those who are not among us? How are we to treat those in the world around us. Well, so what is wrong with the lawyer's response from Leviticus 19.18? Nothing as far as it goes on the surface. But it appears that he did not want all of Leviticus 19 to apply to him. Near the end of Leviticus 19, in verses 33 and 34, the Lord gave the people of Israel a reminder that really cuts the legs out from under the lawyer's question. His question, who is my neighbor? Again, this is tied to what we talked about a little bit in Deuteronomy chapter 6 about their identity and coming out of Egypt. Leviticus 19, 33 and 34 says, When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. 
You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For, and don't miss this, you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You were strangers. Therefore, you should treat the strangers among you like you treat your Israelite neighbors. You should love them as yourself. He didn't need to ask Jesus this question. He already knew what the answer to the question was. He just didn't want to do it. And instead of Jesus returning snark for snark, which he could have quoted these verses to the lawyer and said, what about this, bucko? Instead, he told him a parable to remind him that the command to love your Israelite neighbor as yourself was equal to the command to love the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you and to love him as yourself also. That's the point of this parable. And the reminder, again, the reminder to the people of Israel that they were strangers in the land of Egypt is a detail that we cannot overlook here. This is so massive to their identity and how they are to view others because of what God has done for them. This points to God's mercy in rescuing them. And again, it brings out the reality in Jesus' words in this section just before this that the lawyer is reacting to. Jesus' whole point was that it's all God's mercy. The fact that little children understand things of the kingdom while it's hidden from those with great learning and that the ragtag disciples have had their eyes opened while those in positions of power are still blind. This is the you were once strangers in Egypt reality. Friends, if you are here today and you are a Christian, you must embrace this reality that you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, this is from Ephesians 2, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. As Christians, we don't get to define who our neighbors are based on who we like being around or who agrees with us in every jot and tittle of our theology. Jesus tells this parable to expose the tendency to draw arbitrary lines based on our own preferences. And yes, we all do this. <laughs> The details of this parable are so familiar that I'm only going to briefly summarize them. A man on a journey gets robbed and beaten and left for dead. Three people have an opportunity to come and do something about it. Without even explaining the reasoning behind it, Jesus tells us of two religious folks who chose to pass him by. And then comes the shocker, right? Then comes the moment of the parable that Everybody needs to pay attention to. 
The only person who came to the rescue was a no-good, half-breed Samaritan. That's how this would have been interpreted by the lawyer. This man who was viewed as a social outcast risked his own life, and at great personal cost, he rescued him, and he, he saw to it that this beaten traveler was cared for and nursed back to health. Again, there's a ton going on here. We're almost certain from the, just the way the parable is told that the man that was beaten was a Jew, right? Two Jews pass another Jew by, and here comes this Samaritan who rescues this Jew. I mean, there's all kinds of ethnic tension and things built into this parable. But that's this, that the gist of it is that this Samaritan goes out of his way at great personal cost and does what the others failed to do. That's the point, the straightforward point of the parable. But before we discuss that a little bit more, I want to take a moment and step back and I want to think about the purpose of parables. Now, in chapters 9 through 19 in Luke, which we're going to be looking at here over these next many months. This is the central section in Luke here where Jesus sets his face to the cross. He's going to Jerusalem. 11, it's about 10 chapters because it's just the end of chapter 9. But in these chapters, this central section, 21 out of the 27 parables in Luke fall in this section. And 16 of these parables are unique to Luke's gospel. So the Good Samaritan is one of them. It's not found in any of the other gospels. But we've seen earlier in, in the previous section, um, we saw some other parables, and the, probably the most helpful uh, in kind of thinking about the parables was the parable of the sower. There were four types of soil, and the, the point of the parable was how, that, how these different types of soil, how these different types of people, right, hear and receive the word of God. It's the only one of the parables that's followed up with this detailed explanation. Jesus tells the parable, and then he explains the parable. Well, how did Jesus explain the parable of the sower to his disciples? Luke 8, 10. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. There is an element of continual blinding and hardening that Jesus' parables have as he journeys toward Jerusalem and mostly confronts those who are rejecting him and what he came to do. So we're going to be seeing that dynamic at play quite a bit in these next 10 chapters. This parable here of the Good Samaritan is fascinating because it confronts the lawyer in his sin. But there's also a bit of a cliffhanger at the end. And I think this speaks to the reality that Jesus' parables are meant to create a clear separation between those who hear and understand by the grace of God and those who reject him and remain hardened in their sin. But the lawyer here is left with a choice. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, Jesus' confrontation of your heart in this passage here through his word is not intended to leave you more confused. Because we're not like the lawyer here on the, before the cross where we don't understand these things. We don't understand what Jesus came to do. We are on the other side of the cross where we know these things. We understand what Jesus' mission was. This parable is intended to expose your sin. 
to reveal to you your need for the saving grace of God and the finished work of Christ on the cross that is your only hope. Let this parable pull the rug out from underneath you as it does for all of us. It shows that we do not, indeed cannot, love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength or our neighbors as ourselves. That should lead us all to humble repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, the one who alone was able to love God and neighbor perfectly. So let's turn the corner here to our final section where we see Jesus reframe the question and give this lawyer a challenge here as he puts his, as he tests him and tells him to put his words into action. I love this because Jesus here turns the tables on the lawyer. The lawyer sought to put Jesus to the test and asked a question that Jesus countered with the right question as Jesus now puts him to the test. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The question here, as William Hendrickson says in his commentary, is not who is my neighbor, but am I being a neighbor to those needy ones whom the Lord places in my path? The question is not, who is my neighbor, but am I being a neighbor to those needy ones whom the Lord places in my path? Livingstone Church, let us not just say that we are a community of Christ followers called to know, love, and serve God and others. Let us prove it by actually doing it. The, the lawyer rightly recognizes that the Samaritan alone out of the three, again, the most unlikely candidate out of the three for sure, he was the one who proved to be a neighbor. And he proved it by showing mercy. The emphasis throughout this passage is on the word do. It starts off in the very beginning. The lawyer in verse 25 asked Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds in verse 28 about loving God and loving neighbor, do this and you will live. Then the whole thing concludes in verse 37. He said, the lawyer said, the one who was the neighbor is the one who showed him mercy. The word there is the same word for do. The one who did mercy is the neighbor. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. The emphasis is on action here. It's not just asking a question about who is my neighbor. It's about going and showing mercy and proving that you are a neighbor by acknowledging that everyone is your neighbor. So go and do likewise is how Jesus concludes this whole conversation with the lawyer. As I said, there's a bit of a cliffhanger here. The, the passage ends. We're not, we're not told how the lawyer responds, which I believe is so that we take this question and these commands to heart ourselves. We put ourselves in the lawyer's shoes here. We have to answer this question. 
Which one proved to be a neighbor? And we have to respond by going and doing likewise. So which kind of neighbor, which kind of disciple are we? Or if we want to think in terms of the parable of the sower, which type of soil are we? And if you think this isn't relevant right now in October 2020, I'm not sure what else I could say to convince you. This has been the most tense and divided that I have ever seen in my lifetime that I've ever seen our country. It's the most divided that I've seen churches, which grieves me. The political climate is so volatile and so fragile right now. There's an election in 16 days that will likely only intensify many of these divisions. How will Christians in America wake up on November 4th and respond? Will we lead the charge on the call to love our neighbor as ourselves, even if it is someone whose political persuasions we fundamentally disagree with? How will we respond to the media's coverage about the evangelical vote? Will we let disagreements with our brothers and sisters in Christ about the best way forward for our country cause us to not live out Christ's commandments to love our neighbor as ourselves? Will we seek as individuals and as a church in the midst of times that have been stressful and trying for all of us, will we seek to prove that we are among those whom the Son has chosen to reveal the Father to? Those whose eyes have been opened by grace and by grace alone, and who don't need to justify ourselves before God and others, either for our lack of love for neighbor or because we think we've done it well. There was a line in the confession of sin that we read earlier. It says, sometimes caring for others even becomes the very duty we use to justify ourselves. It goes both ways, right? Getting out of it, trying to justify ourselves, say, oh, that person's not really my neighbor, so I don't need to do anything. Or putting all our eggs in that basket and saying, well, I'm just going to be a nice guy and do all this stuff, and that's my justification before God. And Jesus says no to both of those attempts. We need to come with this mentality this morning to the table. This is the invitation that Jesus offers. Come. Come to this table and declare to the world that you cannot justify yourself before a holy and righteous judge. Declare your desperate need for the gift of grace to give you eyes to see and ears to hear. To confess that left to yourself, you will never love God with all of your being and you will never love your neighbor as yourself as you ought to. If we want to be neighbors who show mercy to all, it must start with the recognition that we have been shown the ultimate mercy. Again, that's why those passages in Deuteronomy and Leviticus are so important, reminding them that God delivered them out of Egypt, right? We need to remember what God has done to rescue us and deliver us out of sin. 
We have been shown mercy by a Savior whose body was broken, whose blood was poured out for self-righteous and self-justifying sinners. So the invitation this morning is to come identify with this Savior. Learn from him what it means to love God and neighbor. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good.